Athletics Football GM Podcast. And now, the Athletics Mike Sando and former NFL Executive of the Year, Randy Muir. Welcome to the Football GM Podcast. Glad to have you able to see us today, Randy Muir. How are you doing? I'm doing outstanding, Mike. Ready to talk some free agency and NFL uh, in a crazy time. Yeah, and we're going to bring in some new listeners and now viewers today. So we'll do a quick introduction. Again, I'm Mike Sando, a senior writer at The Athletic. Been covering the NFL for 20 plus years. Uh, Hall of Fame selector. You can check me out on Twitter. It's Sando NFL. See a little bit more details. Randy Mueller is the namesake, the namesake of the Football GM Podcast, a former NFL Executive of the Year, two-time general manager in the NFL. They say it's hard to get that job twice. Randy was able to do that. He uh, has 35 years of NFL experience. He's a former quarterback himself at the small college level, won a national championship at Linfield College. Uh, He drafted Hall of Famer Walter Jones. He actually had a contract agreement with Drew Brees in Miami. We've talked about that before. I won't go there, Randy. I know that's a little bit of a sore (laughs) subject. but Don't ruin my day. Yeah, enough about us. Uh, let's let's dive in. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the Patriots first, but just to give a little bit of preview of the menu. There's so much. We got the Raiders making the the signing of Yannick Ngakwe, a couple Ravens moves, Jameis Winston and Taysom Hill with the Saints, uh, maybe a little Washington with Fitzpatrick, Seattle, no help for Russell Wilson, that and a lot more. But Randy, we've got Bill Belichick. Robert Kraft going all in on this offseason. It's been wild. We saw Hunter Henry deal came down now on top of uh, Johnny Smith. So dust settling. Maybe there's going to be more. Um, what do you think initially of what New England's doing? I think it's awesome. I'll be honest with you. And I think it's a little bit of a perfect storm, right? We haven't seen the Patriots act like this with their checkbook in years, maybe ever. Um, I think it's a combination of a few things. They have cap room for one thing. The, the pool of players this year is greater than there's ever been before. So the opportunity is there. And let's face it, they were a bad team last year. They weren't very good. And I think Bill saw enough of it that he knew he had to retool. And they've been able to do that already just in the first. And we really haven't got to the official opening of free agency, right? This is just the legal tampering time period. So everybody's kind of jumped, jumped the shark, so to speak. But hey, the opportunity to rebuild quickly is great. And the teams that are aggressive and have a plan to execute are doing it. And I think New England is front and center. I think it's outstanding. And and if you can't rebuild your team in this market, I don't know that you'll ever be able to rebuild it because there's so many ways to do it now with the cap casualties around the league. Teams are letting go pretty good players. You've you've got more opportunity now than ever before. So I think it's been been fun to watch, that's for sure. Now, you might have... Also, maybe fewer teams than normal, too, that are competing for these guys. If there are some teams with you know tighter caps, and we'll get to that a little bit later, maybe even our Ask the GM question at the end, just making sense of the cap situations. But normally, you know, when you were saying that with excitement, Randy, part of me you know, just goes back to what we've always known forever, that it's hard to build your team in free agency. Obviously, you're going to supplement it. But when a team goes and makes a bunch of uh, splashes on day one, aren't they kind of violating the number one rule of free agency, which is don't spend early. That's not the way to build your team. And I understand why they're doing it. I mean, Bill Belichick is an older coach. Robert Kraft is an older owner. And they have missed in the draft. There's just no question about it. They've, they've missed in the draft, and now you got to make up for it. So 
I guess from where they're at with a bad roster, this is needed to do. But is it good, smart, fundamental team building? Well, I think in this case, they're doing it a little different. I don't think, you know, they've obviously paid a lot of money, but don't get me wrong. It's really not about the amount of money you spend or the the, the size of the headline per se. They've re- needed to re- refigure and reconfigure the core of their team. And that's what they're using this as an opportunity to do. They've, what do they say? The saying goes, uh, free agency is the price you pay for drafting poorly. And you said it. And that's a saying that happens in the NFL often. It's said often. And I think what they're doing is replenishing the core of their team. They went out there last year, in my opinion, with a bunch of neighbor kids. I mean, kids that that weren't NFL players. And in the past, they've had Tom Brady to overcome this. They've had Bill Belichick and his staff as some of the best coaches in the league. They've overcame it. They could not overcome the deficient talent that they had last year, and it showed. They were not in a lot of games. They were dominated in some games, and they had to spend some money. And they're spending more in the sense of volume than than uh, the top of the heap big money guys. I think we're still going to see some big money transactions. And again, it's easy to say that that they haven't spent big money, but they've spent a lot of money on a lot of players. And when you add ten or twelve guys over the course of twenty four hours, you're talking about affecting the core of your team. And that's what they've done is. They've upgraded the core. They've upgraded some misses that they've had. They drafted two tight ends last year. So I what know. does that tell you? They're admitting that they may be busted on those guys by signing the two tight ends that I think are two of the best in the league this year. And they also used a first-round pick not that long ago for Nikhil Harry, a wide receiver. And here they are back in the receiver market. We'll talk about each of these free agents a little bit. Let's just recap the, some of the main ones we've got here. Obviously, Hunter Henry, Johnny Smith are the two big tight end signings. They got Nelson Aguilar and Kendrick Bourne uh, as wide receivers. They got an edge rusher in Matthew Judon. They got Jalen Mills for their secondary. Uh, they got uh, Godchucks, the nose tackle from Miami. I think they got another defensive lineman uh, from the Jets. And as I was looking at most of these guys, just about all of them, not the guy from the Jets, but just about all of them, they entered the league between 2015 and 17, most of them as draft picks. So they're kind of in their mid you know, mid-25, uh, 26, 27 years old. And as I looked at New England's roster, they got 36 starts last year from players drafted from 15 to 17. It was like the fourth lowest figure in the league. Of course, they lost a first-round pick and a fourth-rounder in the Deflategate thing, which I thought was ridiculous punishment, but water under the bridge. Um, and so of those 36 starts they got from those draft classes, 16 of them were in Joe Tooney, who left. So um, it's not unusual to have a lot of turnover from that long ago, but that's what they basically replenished. They've gone back and redrafted uh, from that. And I want to get to Hunter Henry with you because uh, you spent 10 years in scouting with the Chargers and were in the middle of their preparations for drafts and free agencies um, as a senior personnel exec. Hunter Henry... Uh, comes over to the Patriots from the Chargers. What do you think of him? What's your experience with him? You got any Hunter Henry stories? Well, when I think of Hunter Henry, I, I think of one of the better players that the Chargers have had the last six or eight years. I, I don't know how they replace an offensive weapon like that, to be honest with you. He's he's a do-it-all type guy. He has been a little nicked up, and maybe that's the negative on paying him big money. But you're talking about a guy that was productive in college, continued to be productive, and came right in uh, to the Chargers team 
as a as a producer his rookie year. I remember the first time I saw him, and uh, allow me to tell a quick little story. We had at the Chargers on our computers a little button that we pushed. It was called the alert button, right? So when you saw <laughs> something out on the road, you could push that alert button, and it would notify everybody in the office that it mattered to, right? I kind of equate it to the Office Depot easy button, right? You can push the easy <laughs> button, and and that was a big red button on your on your on your computer. Well, I only used it twice in my whole time with the Chargers, this alert button. One time was after an early fall practice before the season had even started, and I was walking to my car, and I stopped and cranked up my computer because I had seen Hunter Henry in practice that day in double days and thought, gosh, this is somebody that Tom Telesco, our GM, needs to see right now. This is an NFL tight end, and he was a junior at the time, so he was a young guy coming out, but he gave me all the assurances that he had all the skill set and really was a natural catcher of the ball. One of the best tight ends I've ever had a chance to evaluate. So I pushed the button on that. The alert went out. I hadn't gotten to my car and Tom called me on the phone to say, hey, tell me more, tell me more. So the, the word got out in Charger land early with Hunter Henry. The only other time, I'll just say this, I punched it, was on a little running back from some directional school in Colorado, uh, Eckler. And it was after a late night workout at University of Colorado. I pushed the Austin, easy yeah. button on that one too. And as it turned out, he's become one of their best players in San Diego or LA now as well. So uh, really good players didn't hide themselves at all. They they jumped out right away. And in Hunter Henry's case, you didn't have to look at a lot of film to find out that this guy was all the skill set you wanted and a perfect NFL tight end, in my opinion. Yeah, maybe that's another story of why they would let him go. You've got uh, yeah. you've got a young quarterback in Justin Herbert who needs all the weapons you can get long term, right? And he's somebody who should be for the next six, seven years a really um, productive player for them. For New England, having the two tight ends, I, I just I mean, tight ends are just such a luxury to have. They're hard to find in college, right, uh, nowadays. And to get somebody like that that gives you the personnel group flexibility, when you think of New England over the years, that's been their bread and butter. Whether whether they lined up with 21 personnel and it looked like old school football, but then all of a sudden the fullback's motioning out over here and now they're in an empty set out of 21 personnel. Or, you know, in the Gronk, Hernandez days, they could run 12 personnel better than anybody in the league, two tight ends, but that can look different, right? You could have a guy moving into the backfield. You could have two tight ends on the end. You could put them on one side. You could have them both out. Uh, For Josh McDaniels, this has to be a lifeline, isn't it? Oh, I think it's awesome. I think he's licking his lips. It's really a third down league, right? And it's about matchups. And the addition of two tight ends gives you third down flexibility. And especially when you mention a guy like Jonu Smith, who's able to come out of the backfield, that's going to be a hard matchup for linebackers one-on-one. They can cover him, but he's so big, they can't do anything about it. Same with Hunter Henry. They can split Hunter Henry Henry out. So you you mentioned it, the Gronk Hernandez days, the, the Patriots offense was never more explosive than then. And they're going to win on third downs. I don't know what their percentages were. I don't know what the analytics show them last year. But I guarantee you they'll be better this year on third down stuff. And don't forget in the red zone. That's when matchups are really effective and really come to light. And I think they've, with the addition of the receivers, the addition of the tight ends, now we're going to see what they do at running back. You know, James White's a free agent. They've got to solidify the running back spot. And he's their best pass catcher. He's their best matchup guy on third downs out of the backfield. See where he ends up lighting. But that's a group that I think all of a sudden now defenses around the league have to study how we're going to match up. I'll guarantee you 
defensive coordinators around the league are going back 10 years now to find the film when Hernandez and Gronk were in their heyday. And they're going to find a lot of offense from then that's going to be prevalent in 2021. You know, and I mentioned earlier, Randy, you know, the risks of free agency and you see so many misses and stuff. But last week, just I was curious how general managers had done in the NFL in paying higher salaries for free agents. And so I went through, there's 26 GMs that are incumbents. That means they have at least one off season. And I looked at the 10 most expensive free agents they had signed. And I, I sort of gave a little point system to, okay, if, if, if this deal looked good and we do it again, I, I gave you, you know, a, a higher grade. And if we, if it looked like a bust, a low grade and in between was just sort of a gray. And Belichick came out number one. When I averaged that up, if you look at the signings that he's made, this is just, I did this the last 10 years. Um, there's a couple of misses. Antonio Brown was a, was a bad miss, but I understand what you're doing. You're trying to help Tom Brady. Uh, it was a special case. But Daryl Rivas, Stephon Gilmore, Danny Amendola, Jabal Sheard, Adrian Claiborne, Brandon Browner, Brandon Lloyd, Lawrence Guy. You know, these are players that really helped them win championships. So maybe when you're as smart about football as Belichick, when you're there's no gap between the communication of the head coach and the GM. They're the same guy. Right. Maybe you're going to have a high hit rate. Maybe these are good signings. A hundred percent. I totally agree. And I think that the key thing that people forget now, it's you have to evaluate the player. You have to value the player. And then you have to fit him with what you do. And being Bill can do all three of those things. He doesn't have to talk to anybody else in the building. He doesn't have to see the cap guy. He doesn't have to go, you know, talk to a scout. Bill does this all on himself. He can do all three of those tasks. And I think that's a giant advantage for these guys, the fact that he can do all of that. He's done better than anybody in the history of the game at selecting players from outside his building for the reason of skill set fits with what we want to do. And then once he gets them there, he puts them in the exact positions where it can accentuate their strengths. I think he's done a great job of that. And that's really their bread and butter, which has been um, the New England way more than any other characteristic in my mind, is they have fit players into their schemes. And again, Bill can do all that. He, he's an old school GM, but he's also the coach. The old school GM used to evaluate and value the players together. Now you have two or three guys involved in that, so it's, I think, a little lack of communication, and there's sometimes a disconnect there. Bill can do all of that and doesn't have to really gain information from anybody else in the building. I think it puts them ahead for sure. That's interesting you say that. So you always hear about you know the cap guy for teams, right? And that, I don't know how important that is in every building, but, but if in some cases they are setting the market or determining what the value is for the player. And so you could have a back and forth situation where the head coach isn't really involved in that. A lot of head coaches nowadays, especially these guys are hired. They're 40, 45 years old. They've been a coordinator for three years and they've been coaching. They don't even understand how the cap works. Um, You know, let alone know traditionally what exactly how to peg uh, the players. And same thing with a young GM. Yeah, it's definitely a disconnect. And you see guys getting these jobs. And and you mentioned GMs. I see GMs now hired. They've never done a contract in their life. They have no idea how to value a player. They can evaluate, but they don't value them. So that's a missing ingredient. I think some organizations are set up that they want it done this way. They want the cap guy to operate independently because he's the money guy. I understand that. But there seems to me a disconnect along the way when this happens. 
I would always thought, I always thought for years that I had an advantage as a GM because I've done a million contracts as well. So I could value. One example of that is when I was in Miami and Matt Thomas was our cap guy. He happens to be the Seahawks cap guy, really good at his job, outstanding. We were going to sign a kid named Dante Stallworth as a receiver in Miami one year. And actually I had drafted him in the first round in New Orleans four or five years before that. And so he came to Miami, he visited. I really wanted to draft this guy. Well, as, as, it, as we got to into the recruiting whole process, it became evident that there was going to be some other interest in Dante. And I remember at, at the last second, we decided, well, the market's too great. I just didn't feel good about paying the kind of money that Matt had valued this guy at, that he was getting in talking to his agent around the league. And I never thought much of it. But Matt came down to my office a couple days later and said, hey, and I respect Matt. Like I said, he's really good at his job. He said, I just want to thank you. I said, what are you talking about? Thank me. He said, I want to thank you for putting your own personal agenda aside and not making us overpay to sign Dante Stallworth. And I, I'm th- I had not thought of that really at all. Yeah. I just knew that I had valued him a certain way and I didn't believe the value met the evaluation. So we picked a different lane and didn't do that. But M- Matt was appreciative of that because he said, we would have done it. Had you wanted to sign the guy, we would have done it and overpaid and probably been sitting on a contract a year or two later that we didn't want. So yeah. we were still able to get the process accomplished, Matt and I, because we were on the same page all the time. So I do think that there's pressure on cap guys, there's pressure on GMs oh, yeah. to be on the same page all the time, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And the, the power dynamic in an organization can be unique to that organization. Sometimes you have a power coach and a GM yes. who's younger and just basically is there to to do the scouting and then yes. a cap person and then the owner, right? And there's yeah. budgets and all kinds. You don't just have a free budget of whatever you want to go get whoever you want for however much money um, at all. It's checks and balances for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Film-wise, Randy, on the guys that that they signed, um, you know, what stands out to you? I mean, we talked about Hunter Henry as Matthew Judon or Nelson Aguilar or any of these other guys, anything sort of uh, jump out to you in terms of how they'll be used? I just think the skill sets of these guys that I'm seeing and from what I've seen on film fits exactly with what Bill wants to do. For example, Jalen Mills, the defensive back from the Eagles that they signed, his versatility and his ability to play over a slot receiver, fall back and play nickel linebacker, he's a very versatile piece and that's something that I think he's been missing there. They had a kid that that they signed from us at the Chargers, Adrian Phillips from Texas, who's kind of been acting in that role the last couple years. Well, I think Jalen Mills is an upgrade over that. I think what Bill's trying to do is upgrade a specific skill set as much as upgrade the player himself. So he breaks it down a little different, which always is the way I believe. You got to break it down by skill sets and figure out what you're missing and then add that skill set to your player and put that guy in position where he can't fail. Because there's some things that Jalen Mills can't do, which is put him out on a, on a, on a receiver wide and let him run and exposes lack of, uh, lack of speed. He'll never put him in that position. So Bill does that better than anybody. Again, an example of why he's probably the best NFL coach ever. Yep. And so now they've they've re-signed Cam Newton last year. Last week, I think we talked about, we were wondering if Cam Newton and Alex Smith, for that matter, would ever throw another pass in the league. It looks like there's a better chance that Cam might now, but they're not done. I mean, they, they've got to right. be active in every veteran market and in the draft at that position. And now they actually have some weapons to help somebody succeed. 
Right. And the Cam Newton deal was one year, right? So they've really solved nothing long term. They're going to have to still fill that seat for more than one year. So that tells me they're still out looking. They're still out shopping. Now, they may use Cam in a role, a, a Taysom Hill type role that like the Saints have done with him. I think that makes total sense. But I think they're going to need to find a more pure passer from the pocket to run a more complete offense if Josh McDaniel is going to get them where I think he wants to go with their offense. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So uh, we'll segue from the Patriots here. It's a good opportunity to do it with the Nelson Aguilar signing um, in New England because that means he left Hmm. the Raiders. And the Raiders made news yesterday because they, is it the fourth team now to employ Yannick Ngakwe? The pass rusher drafted by Jacksonville, went to Minnesota, went to Baltimore. Now he's with uh, the Raiders. And it was funny yesterday, Randy, Spend a little bit of time on Twitter, probably not advised, mm-hmm. but you sort of get it gets you going a little bit, you know. And and right. we had we had put up a little um, reaction at the, at the Athletic on the the signing of Ngakwe, and I was sort of the Debbie Downer of the group, you know, like <laughs> you know I was just sort of not that high on, as high on a player, and I and I actually on Twitter I said something to the effect: "There's a huge gap between the Twitter evaluations of Ngakwe." and team evaluations. And it was funny because, like, moments after that, I actually got a text from a guy in a front office saying, with a picture of my tweet saying, bingo. He must have been a bored <laughs> guy, and maybe his team wasn't yeah. signing anybody, but he was actually uh, on Twitter. Right. And so people in the league, and I know you're one of them because we talked about Ngakwe, um, why isn't this a, a good or great deal for them when people say, hey, look, pass rusher, premium position, $13 million a year, this is a bargain. Right. I think, and, and again, you, you hit the nail on the head, and, and I'm not disparaging Twitter evaluators at all because everybody should and be allowed to do it and speak their mind. Right. I get it. But in the bigger picture of schemes, I think most of us evaluators see the downside in the Indocwe situation per se. Like you said, four teams in less than 12 months. The last three could have all signed him if he was what they thought he was. I think in this case, you're talking about a more of a shiny new toy, right? Like a new bass lure that you can't wait to get out there, but it's only part of the equation. If there's no bass out there, we can throw the shiniest lure out there and it's not going to matter. In this case, he has some deficiencies. And I, I when, when I saw this signing, and again, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but it just sounds so Raider-ish that they signed this guy, right? Because he's not complete. He's a flashy toy that they can rush around the outside. And and I do think Gus Bradley will do a better job with their defensive employing their skill sets that they acquire. But in this case, he comes with some deficiency. Not a good run player, not a good edge setter, not a guy that's going to play with his hands and get off blocks. Um, the physicality of the game at the point of attack is not his strength. So I just see a more deficient side than what they paid to get. And again, I, th- I think this is a sign of, of not an evaluator's choice, but maybe, a, like you said, a social media 
choice or somebody that's going to win the press conference more than he's going to win the game for him. And you mentioned Nelson Aguilar. That's another one to me that's kind of a referendum on the Raiders, right? He had a great year with the Raiders last year. Was very productive. He was just there the one year. I think showed great development and progress as a receiver. And he chose to leave there to go to New England where his targets are going to be limited, where they had no passing game at all, but he believes in what they're doing there more than he believes in what the Raiders are doing. So I took his leaving uh, as, a, as a referendum as to where the Raiders are offensively and where they're seen by other NFL players, and I, I, I just don't think that's a good thing right now. I think they've got a lot of weaknesses, and I think people are seeing that. That's interesting You know that you say that because the – Patriots don't even necessarily have a quarterback or a passing game right now. They, they may or may not, yeah. you know, nothing. And here you have the Raiders, you know, who have a pretty good offense, at least statistically, with pretty good offense. And, you know, Derek Carr was a good quarterback last year. So um, obviously money and other things come into it. And maybe, maybe the deal was too rich for them. But didn't you right. hit on that before? I mean, the guy averaged almost 19 yards per catch. He was the best thing they, one of the best things they had going for catching passes last season. Uh, yeah. I agree. Why not? stay there. Um, Saints are interesting, I think, for sure. Um, with their, I mean, what a what a week. Drew Brees retires. Yeah. Jameis Winston um, is re-signed. Taysom Hill is there and does a little deal to his contract that we can talk about later and kind of explain what they were doing. But um, I know you haven't been a big fan of Taysom Hill. Most most evaluators in the NFL aren't as a quarterback, as, a, as an all-around quarterback and a leader right. of your passing game. Um, is it pretty clear to you this is going to be Winston's job? Well, I think it might be clear to some on the outside, but here's the thing. He didn't beat out Taysom Hill last year. Drew Brees missed some games and Taysom played every game. So I don't. I was a little taken back by the... Uh, amount of money that Jameis did not receive elsewhere. I actually thought he would be in demand. I thought a place like the Bears would consider him. Um, He's a pure passer of the football. Obviously, the 30 interceptions is something that people are hesitant to sign off on again to say, hey, we're going to make that our guy. I get it. But if if I was Jameis Winston, going back to the Saints, Maybe he got some of these guarantees, but I would have some question is, am I really going to get a chance to go back here and compete for a job? Because I didn't really have that opportunity this year. I'm sure there's some stuff that we don't know about his development and how he did there last year, but the Saints sure weren't jumping up and down to play the guy. So I don't know. I've always said that Taysom Hill is a kind of a, a stepchild of, of Sean Payton's, right? He's yeah. kind of went out of his way to make sure that we, we prove how good this guy is. And now Jameis is going back into that realm. I just hope he gets a fair shake. That's all I'm saying, because yeah. I think the guy has some yeah. passing skills and I think could do really good in this offense if yeah. he gets the opportunity. I'm not just I'm just not sure he's going to get it. And then to find the numbers, I thought, well, the numbers will determine if he gets a chance. Shoot, he's going to make way less than Taysom Hill. Yeah. So maybe he goes in as the underdog, but at least without Drew Brees there, there's an ability to have a competition or there's an, yeah. there's if there's preseason games, he's going to be playing a lot in some of them and he can then either look better or worse than, than Taysom Hill and, and make it be something that Sean Payton has to at least answer questions about. And then right. what happens in the games, you know, do they win? Do they lose? Um, you know, are they a completely different team? I think people, you know, unless you've, I've heard this unless you've been in a building with somebody like Drew Brees, you don't really understand the impact they have on everybody, you know, and when right. Peyton Manning was in Denver, 
he really wasn't very good anymore his last year, but there was still a drop-off in the organization when he left because of the yep. standard you know, that, that he brings there. No doubt. So now you're going to be entrusting that to um, you know, Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston, who even on their best day aren't even close to that. They don't, just don't right. have the skins on the wall. So um, I think it's a very interesting situation to watch. And just maybe it's just going to be a trial season, right? Do you get right. that if you're Sean Payton, you know, after this 15-year run? You get to try out a couple guys and, and maybe formulate a plan and get their cap in order. Maybe they're in right. the market for a quarterback next offseason. We, we heard, you know, Russell Wilson listed them as a team. Not that Seattle's necessarily going to trade them, but, you know, they could be a, a landing spot for somebody next year. I definitely think it's a step in, in the neutral direction for them. They've had so many cap issues that they've kind of kicked the can on, and now they're having to face reality and pay some of those debts this year. So definitely on paper, the team won't be what it's been. I still think they're going to have some good frontline players. They just have, will have lost a lot of depth in my mind. So if they do get hit with injuries, I think it's going to be a little bit of a struggle for them. But they're still going to have good players. They always have had good players there. So it'll be fun to watch them. And, and I think with Jameis, before we put it to bed, I think the biggest thing he could have taken from last year is the intangibles that a guy like Drew Brees has. And you mentioned it, the leadership, the, the showing up for work, the work ethic, all that stuff. Not that Jameis didn't have any of this, but he's going to have seen that now. Now for a year at the highest possible level, at that Peyton Manning level, at the Drew Brees level, at the Tom Brady level. So that can only help him, right? So it'll be yep. fun to watch and just see how much of that stuck to him having that year with Drew. Yeah, and I remember hearing, I you know, knew some people in Tampa when Jameis was younger, and they weren't, it, it didn't sound like they were as worried about him, you know, working hard or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. it, it, the in-game decision, wasn't it? In-game decision, in yep. decisions with him. And so what I want to see is, you know, when you're the number one pick and you know they're going to fire the coach or the GM before they fire you, right? You're going to get four or five year run unless you're just absolutely terrible. Um, it's probably easier to be less accountable during the games with your decision making. And I think, you know, now that you could actually be benched or cut easily, yeah. um, you know, does that make him more accountable in the games? It hasn't always for somebody like Ryan Fitzpatrick, who we'll talk about in a minute, but. Uh, you know, maybe you just have that gene, right? That risk-taking gene. But I'd like to just sort of find out if that could, yeah. if if that could work. Speaking of Fitzpatrick, I actually love his signing in Washington. I think that's a defensive team that somehow made the playoffs, and he's a type of quarterback that just changes the atmosphere in your building. Oh, yeah. He almost plays like a defensive guy. I think they could really rally around him. And I don't know if that's your goal, Randy. I think there's some people who would be like. Oh, I'd rather not have a guy and then be bad and draft, you know, but that's not how Ron Rivera or football people think about it. They're trying to be as competitive as they can right now, right? Right. Oh, no question. I like the signing as well, but I like it from this standpoint. The two guys that they have on their team, Steven Montez and Taylor Heineke, to me are both third string guys. I don't think they even had a backup on their on their team yeah. at Washington. So I think this kind of comes as, hey, this guy could be the starter, but he'd be fine as the backup as well. That part's been proven. So I still, like you, think they're going to be in the market, whether it's to find a way in a draft to trade up from 19, and that's where they pick. Maybe they, maybe they can get a Trey Lance or a Justin Fields or somebody like that at 19 or move up to 10 to get him or stay in the market for even a Sam Darnold or somebody like that. I think that's the big next domino that has to fall is the Jets have to declare what they're going to do, either Sam Darnold or um, 
uh, Zach Wilson, and that's the next domino to fall. And a place like Washington and then Chicago, they're kind of ha- going to have to react to that. So I think it's a great move by Washington. You're right. I'm with you. I just don't think it's the last move, just like we said about New England. Yeah. Yeah. I think these moves are going to be uh, backed up by something bigger and, and bolder at some point this spring. I actually would like Darnold there with Fitzpatrick, you know, just to see yeah. uh, what he can do. And I think it's been a process of cleaning up that position. When you think about it, Dwayne Haskins was a drag on the operation. You know, he wasn't mature. They didn't want to have him in there. They didn't want to have that be part of their team. They didn't want to enable that. So there was a process in getting him out of there. Alex Smith, say what you want about him. Great story. You know, comeback player of the year. There's only admirable things about how he carries himself, how he plays. But let's face it. Alex Smith was right when he basically said they didn't want him there because there's not a future. Um with him, he's not going to be getting better. It's a struggle. Uh, and you have a big injury. So now he's out of there. And now you bring in Ryan Fitzpatrick, who you can win with. Worst case scenario, you can win. You could go eight. You could probably go eight and eight with that defense with him. Yeah. I mean, just look at what Miami did, right? It's not right. that different of no a situation. Doubt. So uh, you're right. They've, they've cleaned it up. And now you, you could drop somebody else in there. They could be in pretty good shape. And, you know, people are going to hand that division to Dallas out of habit, right? They're going to see Philly in turmoil. They're going to say, well, Joe Judge, maybe they can do it, but I don't know about Daniel Jones. They're going to get excited about Dak back in the fold, but I don't think it would be upset at all if Washington won that division again. Oh, I don't either. And I think the Giants are going to be heard from as well in the division. So I do think it's going to be a pretty good dogfight. I I mean, we've said this from back last summer. Neither one of us are drinking the Dallas Kool-Aid, right? I mean, yeah. it, it is what it is. They get all the media hype. This team was bad when Dak was playing for them. So the signing of Dak doesn't all of a sudden throw them into being the champions of the NFC. I, I think they got so many holes to fill. And they are the anti-patriots, right? They sign players and then figure out what to do with them. So they got to fit guys better on the front end when they join the team with their skill set. They've got to fit guys in better with what Dan Quinn wants to do on defense. So that's to be determined. And they don't have a lot of money. So I don't know how much move, how many moves they're going to be able to, to, to make to get themselves better. They're going to say, well, we, we got injured. We're going to be healthy now. Maybe so, but I'm still not convinced that roster is, is playoff worthy. Yeah, and the same structural issues we've always talked about. As long as Jerry Jones is there, you know, it's a little bit harder to coach the team because he's always right. out front of the GM and, and has relationships with some of the players. And then, you know, the whole odd fit with Mike McCarthy and Kellen Moore, the offensive coordinator they inherited. And right. now you've got a staff change on defense. Um, there's just a it's lot. It's messy. It's, it's just messy. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot going on. So we'll see. I mean, they're going to be better with Dak. I mean, he was playing pretty well. And he gave him a chance to win. I mean, he certainly did. They were going to win a lot more games if he was there. But um, look out for other teams in that division to still keep it close, um, I think. You know, for agency is defined always, Randy, by the teams that do the most early on. Um, the Seattle Seahawks haven't done um, anything yet. I know they were in on uh, Kevin Zeitler. Um, I'd heard they were actually had a better offer um, than Baltimore did, but he chose to stay closer to where he already was on the East Coast. And I think sometimes that's a consideration for you know someone in their early 30s who may have a family or whatever. Um, yeah. But there was a lot of buzz around the CX this offseason, right? With Russell Wilson wanting a, a bigger seat at the table. And he sort of turned this off season through his comments into a referendum on whether Pete Carroll and John Schneider are doing enough 
is that offensive line going to be good enough? And so in the first couple of days of free agency, we see uh, Kansas City sign a guard for $16 bucks. We see Kevin Zeitler go uh, to Baltimore, like we said, on a good, uh, on a, on a good contract. And we see Seattle sitting there doing nothing. And I know on my Twitter timeline or when I could do the radio shows in Seattle, they want to know if the Seahawks are doing enough. And my default kind of always, Randy, is, hey, a lot of bad money gets spent in free agency. They're a good member. They won 12 games. Right. Where are you at on that and them and just what they should or shouldn't be doing? Yeah, I think, again, when, when Russell came out with some of his comments, we, we both said the truth is in the middle there somewhere, right? So that, there, some of them were being very critical of Pete and John and, and what they've done there. And I think some probably need to be taken to heart. I'm okay with where they are now. As we came on the air, I saw a note that said there's 10 teams that haven't done anything, eight of which are playoff teams. So that tells me alone that you're not going to get, you know, uh, the prize by spending the most money in day two or three, you know, or one, two or three, to be honest with you. I think the quality of the player they add has to be, has to have this element. And I haven't heard any names associated with them yet. First off, I think they probably were done a favor by not paying 15 million or 16 million for a guard. I'm, I'm, that's never been part of my philosophy. I'm for paying tackles. I'm for signing a center because I think experience is expensive. And that's sometimes what you get with a center. And I, I'm good with that. But I surely wouldn't pay a top price for a guard. And so I think the dodging of that bullet is probably good. But I think the, the, the dynamic playmaking that they lack uh, from the slot, from the tight end, and from the running back are the skill sets that they've got to find a way to add. So in specific, I haven't seen any names attached to them that really float my boat. So I think when value starts to come down, and they don't have a lot of cap room in Seattle, but when value starts to come down, they'll find that the evaluation fits the value, and then they'll find what fits their scheme. And if they can just stick to that, regardless of what the media says, the public outcry to to make Russ happy, I just think they've got to stick to their guns and they can do that. I've seen them rumored to have a liking for uh, Leonard Fournette. You know, that one for me doesn't do a whole lot. I mean, Leonard Fournette got cut by by Jacksonville, okay, last year. And so he kind of got the perfect storm in Tampa. But I remember saying this about Leonard Fournette as they were making their stretch run. I thought Tampa lacked juice at running back. Yeah. So he may be a bigger kind of powerful looking dude, but I don't see big playability. I think the Seahawks could use some big playability. I don't think Leonard Fournette's any different than Chris Carson. So that's the style that they've been running with the last few years. I think they need to upgrade the style and the dynamic ability from that position. That's just my two cents. You know, and you drafted Deuce McAllister. You, dra- you drafted, were you in on Amon Green? You drafted Amon Green. Yeah. I drafted Amon Green, drafted Amon yes. Green. Yep. Yep. You drafted Amon Green. So you know an explosive back when you see one. Can you help them out and get an explosive back for them this year? <laughs> that, that would be, they did draft, they drafted Penny a couple years ago in the first round. Yeah hasn't really uh, come to fruition. But I'm sort of with you. Like when I looked at them coming into the offseason, this was before Russell had his comments on the offensive line. Um, I thought, okay, they need a tight end. They need a slot receiver. And you pl- you can plug with a guard or two, right? I mean, there's a couple guys out there that you could get. Uh, maybe they're four or $5 million guys, right? As opposed yeah. to $14 million guys and be just fine. I didn't think the offensive line, yes, when they lost their right tackle shell, I mean, it was really difficult. But I thought their tackles otherwise were pretty good. Right. Um, the rest of the year. They, and I think the center position, too, has been one. Um, 
you know, they had Max Unger for a while and they went to Brit and I feel like they could yeah. use, they, they need, need an answer there. Yeah. No doubt. It, I, I know this, when I evaluated, um, Amon Green, when I evaluated Deuce McAllister, I remember watching the tape and telling whoever was in there with me, maybe it was the whole staff, that every time these guys got the ball, I kind of held my breath. When yeah. Amon Green got the pitch, I kind of, I, I wanted that, a game that gave me goosebumps. He might yeah. go. This guy might go all the way. And I had the same feeling when we drafted Deuce in New Orleans. When they turned around and pitched the ball to him, again, I got goosebumps thinking this yeah. guy might go. And that's the feeling I want. That's just my preference. I want a back that can go. And I just haven't seen that back in Seattle. So I would yep. hope that they would find that. I'd love to have that feeling again by watching Seattle, that the back has a chance to go. And when I mean go, I mean score from outside 30 yards. I just think yeah. it's an element they've been missing. And it's a hard feeling to get as an evaluator. It's kind of like when you evaluate a quarterback, when you get to the last two minutes of a game, you feel like <laughs> I still have a chance to win. We still can win this game. This quarterback's going to make a difference. That's the same feeling I have with a running back is that you have the feeling of I might score a touchdown every time this guy gets the ball. For quarterbacks, I always say, who's more nervous, us or the defense? You know, <laughs> and, and with the really good ones in the two-minute situation, the defense is a lot more nervous. Same thing with those uh, special backs. And I, I would have loved if they were in on Hunter Henry or somebody like that, too, at tight yes, end. You know? No doubt. I think, they were, I think they were actually responding a little bit to Russell Wilson last year when getting Greg Olson. But that's not the... A, yeah. That's not the end of the age spectrum. They yeah, or, that ship has sailed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was going very slowly too. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no you know, yes. they needed yeah. to really. Uh, they needed to get a, a, a catamaran there. You know, they can go a little <laughs> bit faster. So um, there's still time in the off season. They they can still you can still find some values. But those two guys going to New England, there's not a lot of guys like that. Um, right. Probably so. Maybe it's the draft for them. They were able to get DK Metcalf. It's time for Ask the GM. Let's hit our Ask the GM question, Randy. This was actually, we thought about this uh, for leading off the show, but there's just so much news we wanted to get into it. And this kind of plays a little bit with New Orleans. You know, I think people on the inside of the league, or if you're you know, really following it extra closely, you, you have a good grasp on salary cap and how all this stuff works. But this is a special year because the cap actually got smaller. And so for, for really most of the last two decades, the cap... Um, was really overrated as a concern because it kept going up and it would bail teams out. You didn't really have the situation like you had 20 years ago where Jerry Jones or the 49ers would have to cut players because they had charged too much on their credit card. That's right. largely not been as big of a problem. Well, now the cap goes down and we've seen, you know, some cuts, deep cuts. And then we saw the Taysom Hill contract extension which raised a lot of questions because he signed a, was it a four year, was it four years, 140 million or something like that? And he's not going to get any of that. Right. So we'll get into the mechanics and ex, you know explaining exactly how that happened, but sort of a side of football, Randy, that the GM has to deal with, but gets a lot of really confusing for the season ticket holder, doesn't it? Yeah, I've been asking on a million radio shows exactly that. What is, what is it? What are they doing when they're rewriting contracts and adding voidable years? What's that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in layman terms, it's just a way to attach fictitious years to a contract so that you can prorate the signing bonus. And most of the time, they 
these teams now they're turning a, a player's base salary into signing bonus and then spreading it over the length of the deal. And if they add two years, they get to divide it out and prorate it a little longer, right? But the key is there's a triggering mechanism that at some point during that contract, and usually it's toward the end of it, where it triggers the void in that he's done something that voids those last two years. Yeah. So all you're doing is pushing off money. They're going to eventually have to pay. There's no getting around the cap, but they end up spreading it out. They hit the trigger to void, and then it all accelerates again. Yeah. So it's in, in NFL terms, they're just called kicking the can. We're just kicking the can. Yeah. We're paying more of the credit card. We're never paying our bill until we have to. So it's just a matter of what you do. You pay cash or you pay credit. And these teams yeah. now more than ever before, like you said, because they need cap room to, to operate, they are putting voidable years. They're doing things that you'd normally not do. I've never been a fan of it because, again, you're not running from cap dollars. You're just pushing it off. So it makes for a yeah. different philosophy that we're seeing tons of this year as teams kind of be, try to become cap compliant. Yep. And so basically think of it this way. All the money that gets paid to the player uh, has to be counted for under the salary cap, but it could be under this year's cap or next year's or future years. And so there's different mechanisms you can use. to. There's different buckets you can put the money in. You're still giving the money to the player, but what bucket you put the money in determines whether you have to account for it all against this year's cap or against future caps. So anything that's a base salary or a roster bonus has to be counted in the year that it's paid. So you have someone like Taysom Hill and his salary is 10 million and change base salary. So the Saints have to count that 10 million against their cap. But if they turn around and reduce that to a million dollars and cut him a check for nine million, the difference, then all of a sudden that signing bonus doesn't have to go in this year's bucket. You can only you can put a portion of it here, and if you add years to the contract, you can divide it equally in prorated amounts. So that nine million, if it were spread over three years instead of one, would only be counting three million in each year. And so the cap number now comes down. But if we cut the player after one year and there's that money hanging out here into the future, that all comes due now. And that's why you have cap hits and, and dead money and all of that. Even then, you can put if you wait till after June, you can push some of that into the future. So it's all a little tricky. It's all a little complicated, but it is all above board. No one's cheating. Uh, everyone <laughs> has to pay in the end. The, the misnomer is that the players are doing the team a favor. They're really not. They're just getting their money early. So they're not affected anyway, except their cash flow goes up in the short term. And you get greater security if the team now yes. has a penalty in the future against the cap for releasing you. So certainly if somebody came to, you know, you or me at our jobs and said, hey, you're making X amount of money this year. Can we just give it to you all now? And, you know, you'd say, yeah, of course, yeah. we'd, all, <laughs> we'd all take it. I mean, you might... Yeah. You might have to have a good budget or you'd be broke pretty soon, but uh, <laughs> you would certainly take it. And I think most of the players um, would, too. But we had a couple other notes on our napkin here. They haven't cut us off yet. We can go a couple more minutes. Do you like legal tampering? I love legal tampering. I think it's awesome. I think it just it, it, it kind of came into the works because the league got tired of teams calling and complaining, the ones that weren't tampering. They all complained to the league. And so the league washed their hands of it by saying, okay, we'll yeah. just make it legal. 
we'll make tampering legal. The problem is that the calendar, the way it's the way it irons out is now tampering starts two weeks before legal tampering. So everybody's always trying to jump the, jump the shark, right? That's just the competitive spirit of the league. But I don't see anything wrong with legal tampering. I don't think there's anything wrong with really tampering once the season is over. You know, I think that's when it really is. What are you, what are you doing? If, if you're not involved in it, you're not trying to gather information, you're not doing the best job for your team. So I like the legal tampering. I wish it was a, a factor when I was running a team because I think it can really be used to your advantage. Okay, I'm going to get, ask you a good question. I'll give you an out if you don't want to include yourself in it. I want the league to start investigating uh, the 2004 team that you were with. But what's the earliest you can remember a deal being done, you know, before free agency? So free agency always starts in March. What's the earliest you can remember or have heard of a deal really being done? And I don't mean just, hey, we sort of have an, a wink, wink. I mean, the agent trusts the team and this is going to happen. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know that it happens super early, but I remember one time in New Orleans when we signed Jeff Blake, who was a free agent quarterback, and that was a big deal for us. Ralph Sindrich was his agent. And I remember two days before free agency hanging up the phone and telling Mickey Loomis, our cap guy, we've got a deal. This is done. So we could put that to bed. One of the reasons we wanted to do it that quickly was everybody we were going to go after wanted to know who our quarterback was going to be. So I wanted to make sure that was nailed down. So there was some strategy with that. Then I could say, hey, Jeff Blake's going to be our quarterback. And it got receivers. It got tight ends. It got other people on board. So there was a little bit of play with it there. But that's as early as I've ever done a deal. And I'll probably get a call from the league wanting to find me on that now, 15 years later, but well, I'll take my chances with the, the penalty. Yeah. What about the combine? <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, you get <laughs> A lot of tough, the combine's a little bit overrated in that a lot of information yeah. does get exchanged, but it's all, in my opinion, it's kind of BS. Everybody's yeah. shooting for the stars. The numbers are ex- way out there, exaggerated. I just never really found that to be a very valuable process for the team per se. Yeah, yeah. Well, anytime we can have a Jeff Blake reference, a great deep ball thrower, if you remember uh, <laughs> yes, Jeff sir. Blake, he could throw the ball down the field. Um, great stuff. Maybe that's our cue. Uh, time to to wrap this up. But Randy, we're gonna we're gonna be back and do this again in a couple of days. There's so much happening. Everyone loves to talk about it. Hope they've enjoyed our analysis. Um, let's get back to Twitter, right? That's where the action happens. Okay.